Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel. We finished 1 Samuel last week. Took me five chapters, one sermon to, to do it. This week, that's nothing. This week, we're going to do 24 chapters, okay? Uh, now, I want to give you an overview of 2 Samuel, and then we'll go back through it. Um, probably a little bit slower than 1 Samuel, more like a chapter a week. But I won't, I won't wear you out uh, after we get maybe to the 7th chapter where the great Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David and how that applies to us in Christ. We may stop after that and do some of the Psalms of David and then come back to 2 Samuel. So that's, that's kind of my game plan, Lord willing, to take you through the book of 2 Samuel. Well, before we get there, uh, let me give you a quick summary. Look at Acts, and then we'll come back to Samuel. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 22. And the reason I want to take you to Acts 13, because here we have a quick summary of, of David's life and really the second Samuel experience. I want to answer the question, why second Samuel? What are you going to get out of it? Why is the preacher going here? Here's a summary statement, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. It says, then after he had removed him, that Saul, first king of Israel, after he had removed him, he raised up David to be the king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, notice two things here, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, number one, who will do all my will, number two. I want us to think about that. This is the summary of what we're going to find in 2 Samuel, that David is a man after God's heart who does all his will. Wouldn't it be great if we could get that out of it? That we would become people who gave all of our hearts to God and do all his will. Now, before I get there, remember what you've already learned about David. In 1 Samuel, Saul is chasing him, chasing him, chasing him. He's under pressure, pressure, pressure. He's trying to protect his own life. He's trying to protect the life of 600 men and their families. And it's just constant adversity, constant distress, constant pressure. He's very depressed. He doesn't even think he's going to live at times. Don't forget that adversity. It's huge. It's great. So now let's put that with the two things we just read in Acts 13. I want you to think about it. I think this would be something, uh, be kind of a motto for David. And here it is. Lord, out of all my adversity, all of my heart, to do all your will. Think about that for a minute. Out of all my adversity, all my heart, to do all your will. Repeat those three phrases for me. I want, you to, I want you to feel this. Uh, first, out of all my adversity. Say that. All my adversity. All my heart to do all your will. Now I want you to hear it, feel it, think about it. And then I want us to get real. How many of us really say that? Really embrace that? I can't tell you the number of times, different words, but the number of times I've heard people say, you know, as soon as I have enough money to pay all my bills, then I will be able to, to serve the Lord. Then I'll be able to do what you're asking. Then I'll be able to, to give, to minister, to come to church. 
or the number of times I've heard people say, as soon as I get out of this affliction, this illness, this overwhelming state of pain, as soon as I, I get there, then I will be able to serve the Lord and minister for the Lord and do what he says. Where, where did we get this notion that I've got to be a little richer and I've got to be pain-free before I'm really all in with God and wholehearted and devoted and serving Him. It seems that we use it constantly as a rationalization. I would be glad to give my life for God if I were just a little richer, if I just had a little bit more and if I was a little less in pain. But that's not what David's life is about. David's life, out of all my adversity. Lord, I don't have to get any more money. I don't have to be richer. Lord, I don't have to be pain-free. I don't have to get rid of the distress. All my heart to do all your will. See, if we could get that, that's revolutionary. If we could, we could, we could go to heaven with that kind of ministry and life on earth, out of all my adversity, do, does any of us really think we're going to get so rich and so pain-free that then we can just comfortably please God? Anybody really have that fantasy? I mean, it's a fantasy. Ask anybody over 60 if life gets easier. I mean, we know the cliche, old age is not for sissies. Why? Why do we know that? Because it, you don't ever escape adversity. So we've got to get this mindset that David had. It's out of all my adversity. Whole heart. All God's will. So I'm taking you to 2 Samuel to show you these things. I hope that it just transforms us more and more into the image of God. Now there's two perspectives in Samuel. I don't want us to miss one for the other. There's this perspective of the life of David. I don't want to just moralize and say, here's the example of David, you need to have this example. There's much more here than that. There's that. It exists. But not only do we have the life of David, the rare individual that God says about him, whole heart, all my will, but we also have in David's life, God. And every time we see something about David, we need to be saying, well, what's the picture of God as well? And I want us to see that as we go through 2 Samuel together, the first eight chapters. It's about God's, David's heart. But as David gives his heart to God, you see God's resources for David. You see both. In chapters 9 through 20, uh, you see his humiliation. You really see him take a nosedive. Nose uh, there you go. Uh, where he commits adultery and murder and lots of problems. But at the same time, you see God's discipline. And it's a loving discipline to draw him back. And then in the last chapters of the book, you see David's just, oh man, he messes up. He's got a hard life still in his old age. But you see God's grace 
and righteousness extended to him. So there's a lot here for us to see, both perspective, David and God's, as we go through. Let me walk you through 2 Samuel so you get the big picture, and then we'll come back through week by week and do some of the uh, chapters individually. Chapter 1, 2 Samuel, the first four verses, says this, Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziglag. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head, and it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to him, From where do you come? He said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said, How did it go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan and his son are dead also. We pick up chapter uh, 2 or 2 Samuel right where we left 1 Samuel off. Excuse me as I drink. I hate doing that. People keep asking me, what's... how was the time in Korea? I feel like I'm still getting over all the smog I ate in Korea. Thank God for the promised land. Good to be back. We pick up 2 Samuel right where 1 Samuel left off. 1 Samuel, remember, we ended with a battle and Saul dying. First story we get in 2 Samuel is the news that Saul has died. Now, you've been hearing over and over all through 1 Samuel That when Saul dies, David becomes king, right? Well, notice chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Samuel. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go? And he said to Hebron. Why is he going up to a city? He's been hiding in a cave. He's been hiding in Philistine territory. The king of Israel just died in a battle against the Philistines. David had been promised, and the promise had been given to Saul, his family, and everybody else, that when Saul is out of the picture, David will be your next king. Samuel had already anointed David to be the next king. Now what's interesting to me is that when the runner from the battle comes and says Saul has died, why is they coming to David? Everybody knows You go to David, tell him he's the next king. So the runner comes. David finds that it's true story. Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan, has died. So the question in David's mind and everybody else's mind, are we going to have an inauguration service? Do I go to a city where everybody's going to have a parade and gather and I'm going to be the next king? What's interesting to me is that David had to ask that question. You don't see David with his bags packed and the moving truck in the driveway. Rather, after Saul is dead, David inquires, it says, chapter 2, 1, inquires of the Lord, uh, time for promises to come true. You know, what do we do here? I am willing to stay in the cave. I'm willing to stay in the wilderness. All your will. All my heart, the adversity, all my adversity. If you want to take me out of this and put me on throne somewhere, I'm going to wait on you. And you tell me 
not only when to go, but where to go. It reminded me of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know that passage, right? Uh, Turn there and put it down. I mean, that's one that you want for your kids to just really grasp. I think David gets it in a strong way. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's where David's at. He chooses to trust. God, I I trust you, but is this the time? Is this the place? Do you have some other plan? He acknowledges him. He doesn't just say, let's go, guys. We can take the kingdom. Saul's out of the picture. Jonathan's out of the picture. Let's run for the nearest city. Let's have a parade. Let's anoint David king. Whoever wants to do that, David says, no, 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 let's... Let's wait. Let's lean on the Lord. Let's inquire of the Lord. Let's make sure this is a God thing and not just something we want to get out of adversity. God may want us to stay in the adversity. So David has that prayer. And I just you know, want us to think about, you know, why is that such a difficult lesson to learn? Maybe we feel like our pain is so great, we can't wait to get out. We just... We run for it. We push for it. And in the process, sometimes we don't trust in the Lord. We trust in so many things. We trust in science. Many times before we trust in the Lord. Lord, I'm in all this pain. And I know you've, you've said you've created all this food and all these things for us. And they're good and yet... I just read this review that this is what's good for me and that's bad for me, so I'm not going to have that. I'm going to trust science on this one, God. I'm going to trust science. Or I'm going to trust my doctor. I know you promised me something and we've been praying, but I'm going to trust medicine. Or my wife's always been good at having an intuition. I'm going to go with that this time. I'm going to go with my feelings, my gut on this one. How many times do we really come to God and say, God, forget everything else. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to acknowledge you as first, as primary in all things, and I'm going to only go with that. It doesn't mean the other things aren't important, but there's, those are the subpoints. They all align under Christ, under God. We're seeking Him first. And we're not trying to get out of adversity. We're trying to be led out by His grace. It's like, God, you may have designed this this pain for reasons. Is it time for me? Is it the right place for me? That's where David was. And we can learn some of that from him. To learn how to get more God-focused and acknowledging Him in all our ways. So that he's first and foremost. Well, let's keep with David. Chapter 2, verse 4. He's told to go up to Hebron. So, verse 4. The men of Judah came and there anointed David king over the house of Israel. Now, you think everything's easy and, and free at this point. It's not. Because as soon as they anoint David king over Israel in Hebron, jump down to verse 8. But Abner, the son of Nur, who see, he was commander of Saul's army. He doesn't die in the battle. 
Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel and over Ephraim and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Wait a minute, now we got two kings. David's king over Israel, and Abner says, No, 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 Ishbosheth is king over Israel. And this goes on for a while. Ishbosheth, for two years, it tells us, and then some others, and then. Verse 11, the, the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So we've got really this civil in, uh, war, this internal conflict where a group of people say, I'm, I'm going to follow David. He's going to be king. And another group say, no, I'm going to follow Ithbosheth. He's going to be king. And then you've, you've obviously got the rest of us in the middle say. I don't know who to follow. I thought God promised it to David, but Ishbosheth is Saul's son, and Saul helped my family out a lot. He, he delivered us many times. So I, I feel this loyalty to, to Saul's family. Who do I follow? So this goes on for about seven and a half years. And then we, we see chapter 5. Uh, first uh, five verses. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we, so this is all the tribes, not just some of them, not just Judah. We are your bone and your flesh. Previously, so they're saying, We messed up. We followed Saul. We need to follow you. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel. And you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned for 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. All right, so David's now king. He's king over all the tribes. He waited. He's, so I was, I was telling you, you trust in the Lord in all your ways. He's waiting seven and a half years for this. So the chapters kind of come quick. There's a lot of adversity, a lot of internal conflict, a lot of people saying, I'm with you, and a lot of people saying, I'm not really. Until finally they get to the place where all the tribes are saying, yeah, we're, we're all in now. And uh, we're going to be under you. And David reigns, and he's a great king. Now, how did it all happen? Don't want you to miss it. Nowhere do we find David became king because he was wise. Nowhere do we read David became king because he was such a strategist. It does acknowledge the fact that he, he was a leader. He was a great warrior. We know that about him. We knew that way before he became king. How does he become so great and awesome don't miss this. This is one you want to circle and underline. Chapter 5, verse 10. David became greater and greater. Don't you want that on your epithet? You became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord God of hosts was with him. Now notice what just happened there. It did not say... David became greater and greater 
because he followed hard after God. It doesn't say he was greater and greater because he read his Bible, because he prayed, because he went to church, because he took whatever next step was important to follow after God. What does it say? It says God took steps to be with David. God was with David. Do you see the difference? It's one thing for us to say, I am with God. Far different to say, God is with me. Think about the celebrities you know, or the autographs you have. Uh, I thought back to uh, our bicentennial celebration. You remember as a nation, we were declared our independence 1776. So 1876, 1976, our bicentennial celebration, if you were a South Carolinian then, I hope you were, hope you've been in the promised land a long time. You went down to Columbia, and we had a big celebration for our bicentennial celebration as a nation. And in the, the Coliseum, the stadium, and all down there, we had the big celebrities of that time, Bob Hope, Anita Bryant, and Minnie Pearl. Oh. And all the choirs from all over the state were invited down to sing glorious American anthems. I happened to be in one of those choirs, so I was invited down. I was on the stage, and we got down to Columbia for this bicentennial celebration. Those three celebrities said, we'd like to greet the choirs. And they stood on stage, and we all got to walk by and shake hands with Bob Hope, Anita Bryant, and Minnie Pearl. And get the autographs and all of that. They were nice to do all that. So for years, I used to say, you know, yep, me and Bob, Bob Hope, yeah. We tight. We were in this concert together. We held hands. We sang. I could say stuff like that. And it was true. I could say, I know him. I, I am with him. But do you think he ever had another thought of me? And it's the same way with you who've run around and got autographs. You've got this person's autograph, and you remember a special moment with that person. But do you think that person ever sits around and remembers you? See, that's the difference. It's one thing to be with them. It's entirely a different thing for them to be with you. It's one thing for me to be with God. Saying, God, I hold your hand. I read your Bible. I, I, I talk to you. I pray to you. I, I know your law. I know your commands. I am running towards you. But we don't want to get to our last day and God say, yeah, but, yeah, but. I never knew you. Depart from me. So sometimes I think we get the man's side and we get all focused, which is why I say I want you to get both perspectives here. Our desperation should not be for Bible study, prayer, church attendance, fellowship, all that. Our desperation should be for God to be with us. God, fill me. God, love me. 
God, never depart. Watch over me. Protect me. Be my refuge, my strength, my shield, my help. Be with me. And when you start wrestling with that, I mean, what can you do? I can't do anything to win God over. But obviously we can do things that, you know, make us more useful to Christ and His kingdom. So, so we work for those things, but those things are not what earn us any merit, any favor. We should always still be desperate that God comes and be with us. It's a prayer of mine every single week. Before I get before you, I say, Lord, it doesn't matter how well prepared I am. It doesn't matter how much I've read 2 Samuel. It doesn't matter how I get the picture. I am a frail human that messes up all the time. And my people will get nothing if you're not with us. God, we desperately need you. They don't just need a sermon. They need the Spirit of God to come through a sinner like me and minister to them. And we need that as parents. And we need that as kids. We need that everywhere we go. Lord, do not let me go unless you go with me. I can go with God, but I want God to go with me. And that's what David had. And because David had it, he became greater and greater. I don't think there's any of us that don't want to become greater and greater. On some level, the secret is that it, it will only happen in the sovereignty and providence of God that He lifts us up, He raises us up. God chooses to be with us and to bless us. And when you start seeing that happen, it's so exciting to have God in your life and working through you, and you as a dad or a mom, as a parent, a grandparent, you can, you can say to your kids, follow me, watch me. I want you to see the work of God. Just hang out with me because you will be blessed. Why? Because God's in this place. If God is with me, you're going to experience some of the blessings of God. The non-Christian world will come to us at times and say, tell me about what's going on. I mean, I just see blessing in your life say yeah that's a god thing god is with me it's not that i'm doing something it's that god's doing something david had that experience and the people of god recognized it and we want to see that over and over again well that's such a big big ingredient to life i, I could spend more time but let me Read Psalm 15 when you get a chance. It's a psalm of David, and David is asking the question in Psalm 15, who can ascend to your holy hill, O God? And as he asks that question in Psalm 15, who can be with God? He's wrestling, will God be with us? And for you to think about that, he mentions a man of integrity, a man who loves righteousness, a man who uh, gives but without interest, a man that does all these things but... Is that covered all in Christ? Is there anything we need to be doing? Think through that. It's a, it's a great exercise of how do I get to God? How do I get God to me? Well, back in 2 Samuel, that's the first eight chapters. Then chapter 9 and 
through 20, like I said, it follows with, with David kind of taking a downward spiral and going through some deep trials, uh, sins, adultery, murder. Uh, let's see where the sin starts. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Uh, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Twice in one verse it tells us David neglected duty. Starts out at the time when kings go to battle. David was a king. David's not going. And it, then it repeats it again. Kings should have gone. The battle is proceeding, but David stayed. So he's got a duty to do. He's getting older. I'm sure he's getting tired. I'm sure there's a lot on his plate. He still has adversity as king. But God's revelation to us is he's still, nevertheless, neglecting duty. Kings should be leading in the battle, even if you're in a chariot and you're not on the front line, if you're, you're carried, you're, there's some sort of direction going on. You know, and an in, indication is he didn't go. He stayed in Jerusalem. And while he was staying in Jerusalem, I mean, you just assume, what if he had gone to battle? What if he had done his job? What if he had done what he was supposed to do? Well, if he had done that, maybe he would have never seen that Bathsheba fox. You know, maybe he would have never lusted after her. Maybe he would have never committed adultery. And if he had never committed adultery, then he wouldn't have to be trying to cover it up. And he covers it up with murder. So where does the sin start? The sin seemed to start at, at that, that moment where he said, I'm, I'm tired of doing my job. And I'm weary. And here's a moment when you're weary and heavy laden, your Christ says, you need to be coming to me. But David didn't go. And instead he just turns to his flesh and his own pleasures, and he commits adultery and then murder. And there's lots of consequences that come out of that. We can evaluate our own lives a little bit there. Look at when you've sinned. See if you can stop some of it. I see it in my life. A lot of times when I sin, it's when I'm at ease. It's when I'm not focused on my purpose in life and my, my job and my duties. And I can rationalize, well, I'm tired. I've been focusing on it too much, and I need to just get away. But when I get away and don't keep staying on task and on purpose, then I start thinking about myself and what I want and not what God wants. And it's easy then, isn't it? You know, when you're all by yourself. So who are you when you're all by yourself? And when you're not focused on your job and your task and your purpose in life. And those times when nobody else seems to be around are times when you are turning from God and just turning to self. And it leads to sin. And that's where David was. And so it led him into sin, great sin, and that sin affected him, it affected the whole nation. You know, so evaluate, 
is there anything right now you're neglecting? Is there, is there a task God's given you? Is there a purpose God's given you? You need to stay on task. You need to stay with that purpose in front of you. You know, if you find yourself, well, I, I don't feel like, don't think I can, don't really want to worship right now. What's the chief end of man? What is your f- primary goal here? It's worship. But I, but I don't feel like it. I'm weary. When you start feeling that way, you're getting, getting off focus. I don't feel like worship. I don't feel like prayer. I don't feel like God. I don't feel like fellowship. I don't feel like... I mean, it goes on and on. And we start neglecting things that we know are our primary reason for being here. When that starts happening, sin is crouching at the door. Because when we neglect God, Satan says, Ha, my moment. And Satan comes in with temptations to tempt you even further and further, further away from God and into sin. You see that in the life of a godly man like David. The contrast is really great, and he had to deal with it. Uh, he dealt with it well. Uh, chapter 11 of uh, 2 Samuel, you see that it's pointed out to him, verse 27 says, when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. So they, they mourned Uriah's death. David sent and he brought Bathsheba to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. God points out, hey, 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 just because he's king, just because he's got a heart for me, I don't want you to think I let this go. This is a sin. This is serious. And the sin is It's huge. Uh, Look over at chapter 12, the consequences. Beginning at verse 9, he says to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me, and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Verse 13, And David said to Nathan, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sins. You shall not die. Two great things you want to see there. One is, David confesses his sin. Now, he confesses and he confesses seriously. Uh, He's not playing here at all. He confesses quickly as soon as he was confronted. But at the same time, he wasn't confronted for a year. Or at least nine months. It tells us this. He committed adultery. She, Bathsheba, became pregnant and the child was born. She bore a son before this confrontation. So we've, we've gone at least nine months, maybe a year's time before he gets this confrontation. So David, in his own study, you know, it's like, I pulled it off. You know, I killed Uriah. He doesn't know. I've committed adultery. And God said, no, 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 you didn't pull this off. What you did was evil 
It was a sin. You broke my law. And it's so serious to break my law. I'm going to give you a glimpse into the future. Sometimes, see, we don't get this glimpse. But God says, don't think your sin doesn't matter. Our sin has consequences. You know, if I commit the sin of drunkenness, and I cross the median and kill your child, why did I kill your child? Because I sinned. And you say, David, I know you're not a drunk. You don't do that. I forgive you. You ask forgiveness, I forgive you. So you forgive me. Your family forgives me. Church forgives me. It doesn't mean I don't suffer consequences. I've just killed someone. I may go to jail. I may go to jail for the rest of my life because of that one sin. Even though you forgive me, you don't have the, the, the power to keep the judge from sending me to, to hell. So, hey, look, I want to make an example of you. You shouldn't have been doing this. You're going, you're going to be locked up for a long time so that people realize how serious drunkenness behind the wheel is. That would be the consequence. Every sin we commit has consequences. In this place, God tells David ahead of time these consequences says, your own children, there's going to be the sword in your own household. David had four sons that died. And this is, this is not play death. David, had, David lived to bury them. First son was this child by Bathsheba. I mean, soon after this confession, the child will die. So he's got to bury a baby. Then he's got to bury Ammon. Then he's got to bury uh, Absalom. Then he's got to bury Adonijah. So he's got these four precious sons he buries. God told him ahead of time it's going to be part of the consequence. If you'll remember how wages of sin is death. And then he says there's going to be this sword. Absalom, one brother, kills another brother, Ammon. So the sword is in the house. They're killing one another. House of a godly man. Uh, Ammon, one of the, Absalom kills Ammon, but before Ammon is killed, he rapes his sister, Tamar. Also part of the consequence. And then later Absalom, who's killed a brother, wants to, kill dad and take over the kingdom and he takes over the kingdom and he sleeps with ten of Solomon's wives out in public so everyone can see which is exactly what God said would happen. These are consequences of sin. So David takes this into the rest of his days. Sin matters. Sin hurts. Sin doesn't, you know, we we got this notion well, it doesn't hurt anybody uh, you're not thinking straight there this shame and this hurt will go to your family your community and to your nation and David gets the full consequence of sin so when he says God I sinned against 
you. He's t- he understands sin on a level most of us miss. We think, no, I, j- I just sin against one another. But David sees this God who is holy, holy, holy and can't stand to look upon sin and how to live with such a God and how, to, how wonderful it is to have that God live with us. Um, all God said occurred. David gets it. David lives with it. And David's blessed over and over because he begins to get it. Well, uh, the last chapters deal with lots of things. David leads his nation through a three-year famine. He has to destroy the descendants of Goliath again. Um, leads in great deliverance. He has great um, uh, final words as the, the book concludes. I want to take you to the last chapter, uh, chapter 24. Um, and as he gets to chapter 24, David says, verse 10 says, Now, uh, David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So this sin of just numbering people to see how great and wonderful you are kind of thing. David's heart troubled him after he numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've acted very foolishly. I want you to catch that. As he gets to the end of his life, he doesn't need some prophet saying, hey, you messed up, David. Get, get right with God. And his heart now is troubling him. And he quickly begins to say, God, I messed up. I acted foolishly. Please forgive me. Let's limit the consequences. Let's move forward quickly. I, I'm messed up here. And I want you to see a huge comparison between Saul, 1 Samuel, and David, 2 Samuel. In Saul's case, over and over and over, Saul is, well, they're both great leaders. They're both kings of Israel. They both lead as king for about 40 years. Saul, 42, David, 40. That's long-term leadership over God's chosen nation. Saul runs after God. He seeks the priest. He seeks to pray. He seeks God's word. But God doesn't answer. So Saul turns and seeks from witch doctors and mediums and psychics and those things. David, on the other hand, he's seeking hard after God and God answers. What's the difference? Well, one, God is with David. God was not with Saul. God departed from Saul. God is with David. But one key difference between David and Saul is every time Saul's sin was pointed out, Saul would say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. The devil made me do it. I just, I just had to. When David's sin is pointed out, David says, you're right, I sinned. I acted foolishly. That was the worst thing I could have possibly done. Please forgive me. My sin was against you. Here's the difference between great men. One understands nothing really about how serious sin is. The other, David, understood how serious sin was, an offense against God, and you need to learn to deal with it daily and quickly. You need to learn to repent, to turn from it, and to run back to God saying, please have mercy, fall upon me with mercy and kindness because I messed up. 
one of the things I find a clear characteristic of a genuine believer and a not a genuine believer. A genuine believer of Christ is somebody who deals honestly, faithfully, regularly with sin. The one who says, I have not sinned, he's a liar, he doesn't know the truth, he doesn't know Christ. But when you get to the place in your life where you say, yeah, I'm a great sinner. And the good news is I have a great God who pursues a great sinner and forgives me. So I try to go as fast as I can to repentance and to forgiveness and to confession. And that's what David did. Because I have a merciful, kind, gracious God. He has a standard he will uphold. And I fail at that standard every day. I must repent. Are you daily dealing with sin? Are you turning? Are you repenting? Are you confessing? Are you getting back to God's law? That's the kind of person God wants to be with. That's the kind of person God greatly blesses. Well, some takeaways I've given you over and over. Uh, what will it take for us to do all God's will? Do we really have to get out of our adversity to do it? Do we have to be richer and more pain-free? Do you have to get a promotion? Do you have to get more money? Do you have to be healed? Or are you ready right now to say, God, out of all adversity, all my heart, all your will? Number two, uh, do we understand lasting success is granted by the sovereign, providential hand of God? We need God with us, not the other way around, just us with God. It's not about our decision for him, it's about his decision for us. And then third, do we have to be perfect to be great in God's eyes? Absolutely not. We have to be real with our sin. We are sinners who are messed up. And God longs to hear us say, I have sinned. Please have mercy on me as sinner. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of 2 Samuel. It's so packed with major life-changing themes that the world has blinders on. They just don't see it or get it. What a privilege to be given revelation. What a privilege to have the light of Christ shine brightly upon us. Lord, in your light we see light. Let us come to Christ. Let us see the truth. And let it free us to live these great lives you've designed for us. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, for the freedom from sin and its bondage granted us in Christ. Father, let us see it more and more and live this radical new life like David for you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.